amazing as always. Alrighty, if you have your Bibles, please open them to Colossians chapter 2. If you do not have your Bibles, it will be behind me on the screen. And we're going to start with verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or which regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from which the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were... Will, we're still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to the human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. May God bless the reading of his word. So we're continuing on in Colossians, and Timothy and Paul, um, they've had to deal with a lot of warnings to give to the Colossians and to us. They've had to sit there and tell us, okay, you know what, these are false teachings, and we have to tell you these are false, these aren't true, these are going against what it is that God has given through his son Jesus Christ. And so because of that, we continue on with the warnings, we continue on with what it is that these Colossian believers have been experiencing, these false beliefs that have come to take them captive from Christ. And so what do we read? Verse 16, therefore let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Now let me begin this too as we continue. These few verses are very complicated, um, as you might even see when we begin. Um, And so I'm going to try to unpack them as best as I can. If you have questions, ask me, (laughs) though. I'll try to do the best I can. Paul and Timothy, they connect these verses with the previous verses with the first word, therefore. Um, In the previous verses, we found how Christ was triumphant over the powers of darkness. He disarmed them of their power. Likewise, that though they were dead in their sin, God has made them alive through Christ. It is because of this they turn to the false teachings. In particular, they warn not to allow others to pass judgment on you. The word for judgment here can denote a simple statement of judgment like judging the time of day, for example. But in this context, it is clear it is meant to be a negative judgment against someone. Thus, they may make claims about their salvation or judgments about their life in a negative way. What is it that they might pass judgment over, though? They specifically mention food, drink, festival, new moon, and Sabbaths. When it comes to food and drink, it is clear that these false teachers were advocating against eating certain kinds of food and drinking certain kinds of drink. There may be an element of the Judaizers in this. Perhaps they were Jewish Christians who were arguing to abstain from unclean foods and drink. But such abstinence could be found in other religions as well, so we don't want to just pin it on Jewish believers. 
Because of this, scholars are divided about the food and the drink motif as it could be a reference to the Mosaic Law or it could be some other kind of aesthetic practice to refrain from certain foods and drink, um, such as alcohol. Now, when it comes to festival, new moon, and Sabbath, it is clear that this is in line with Judaism, as each one represents a particular Jewish practice in the Mosaic Law. The problem only comes, however, with what kind of influence are they advocating? Is this a mainstream Judaism that demands such observances and thus the teachers are advocating it? Or is it uh, synchronistic? That is, a Judaism mixed with other religious observances being delivered. Ultimately, it seems most likely that this last is the case, especially when we consider the elemental powers at work. Simply put, in Judaism, such powers were not in play the way they were in the pagan religions. So it seems that there were those who were saying that in order to have growth, spiritual growth, they must practice and worship in these ways. Now verse 17, these are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The above aesthetic aesthetic practices which are being demanded lead Paul and Timothy to discuss the shadows and substances. Um, Now this is an interesting way for them to discuss the different ages we encounter within the scriptures. In the age of promise, which is the Old Testament, we find elements of things to come. Thus, they are a shadow of what we were to see, which is the substance, which is Christ himself. Now that the substance of Christ, or the substance which belongs to Christ, has come, it is no longer a time for shadow. As such, such religious practices were necessary in order for spiritual growth back then. As it is in the age of substance, we find such rules and regulations to no longer be necessary for growth. Um, And there is also, as a pause, I don't don't have to pause it anymore, but um, there's also an element of of philosophy in here, of when it comes to this idea of shadow and substance, and we've talked about this before, um, how Plato... He argued about the cave, and what was real were not the shadows that people were tied up and watching, but the the people behind the people who were tied up and watching. Thus, the substance were the people, the reality, but what was false was the shadows. Um, And so Paul might be using that in this critique. Now verse 18. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going into detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Again, Paul and Timothy warned not to be disqualified or to not let others judge them. How could they be disqualified or how could they be judged? By those who would insist on asceticism or another way to translate it would be delighting in their humility. This asceticism is a reflection of food and drink as well as following the festivals previously mentioned. And when we consider humility, they may have a false humility, uh, delighting in their denial of such food and drink and their works in following ceremonies as described above. Likewise, they add a rather interesting statement, worshiping of angels. This is one of the most debated aspects of this letter so far. Um, Some have argued the way that the ESV translates it as worship of angels. As such, this would logically mean that they were saying it was necessary to worship angels. Others, however, 
have argued that the angels are not necessarily the subject of worship, so they claim that it would better translate as worship with angels. In this sense, these individuals were claiming it was necessary or boasting falsely in worshiping with the angels in the heavenly sanctuary, likely as a reflection of about the visions which they have had. Admittedly, there was much written during the time and in the intertestamental period of worshiping with angels. So theologically, it could make sense since this was a theme within mystical Judaism. However, lexically, linguistically, it makes more sense to translate it as worship of the angels. Likewise, when we consider how so far Paul and Timothy have argued that Christ is sufficient and greater than other spiritual beings, um, it seems likely a rebuke against those who would worship angels instead of God. Likewise, when we consider pagan religions at the time invoking angels or calling upon angels for protection or some other means, it is possible that they were worshiping angels and arguing that others should as well. Overall, in all honesty, it likely won't matter much of a difference which way one translates it or understands this part of the verse. Um, Or whether it is to be understood as them worshiping angels via the visions or worshiping with angels. In either case, they are emphasizing their angelic understanding and are judging others who do not have the same experiences. Now next we see another aspect of the mysticism in that they go on about their visions. Um, This is likely representing them having visions and then expounding on them. In fact, they may even be using their ascetic practices to order, um, in order to cause their visions to happen. Um, regardless, they go on and on about their experiences and may even be formulating their teachings from them. Ultimately, Paul and Timothy recognize such individuals are being puffed up without reason. To be puffed up in this way represents an individual who has a bit of arrogance. As such, they have an arrogance which has no basis with reality, that Paul and Timothy say. For while they may be having such visions and thoughts, the simple truth is that they are being influenced by their sensuous mind. Thus, despite their spiritual bravado and how they claim to be beating the flesh, they are ultimately only being duped by the flesh. Verse 19, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. Ooh, the greatest critique found in Colossians has been how others have been outside of Christ. As it is, Paul and Timothy hold such teachers and those who are promoting such fallacies as not holding fast to the head. The head here representing Christ, who is the head of the body, as we've seen in the previous chapter. The body then represents the church. Thus, it is from Christ, who is the authority of the church, that the whole body is also nourished and knit together. It is not going to be by ascetic practices that one will find growth, but by continuing to give oneself to the lordship of Jesus. For it is through him and his gospel that God will cause growth. As such, the false teachers have been promoting ideas which would claim growth, but in truth, they miss the mark. 
They're claiming that through their ascetic practices and through rules and regulations and ceremonies that they will be able to draw closer to God. But as it is, it is only through Christ that we are able to draw closer to God. And it is only through obedience to Christ that nourishment and therefore growth will occur. This growth is both individual and corporate. Individual spiritual growth, corporate spiritual growth, and even growth in numbers, which has been hinted at previously in Colossians. Now, I'm going to do a few verses together because they fit really well. Uh, verses 21 th- or 20 through 22. If with Christ you died to the ent- elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used according to human precepts and teachings. All of these things lead Paul and Timothy to bring forward the main thrust of their argument. They begin with the if clause. The if clause has an implication that in our baptism, we are joined with Christ in his death. That joining together has implications in that which Christ, with Christ we are no longer bound to the elemental spirits of the world. Death here then implies further that separation that occurs from those elements. We do want to make a slight modification with what they say here though. In the Greek the text simply says the elementals of the world. The ESV along with most other translations adds spirits um, because it is possible to understand the elements in this way. However, doing this takes away another focus of the term elementals of the elemental properties of earth, fire, air, and water which the term generally meant. So a better understanding is not to add spirits, but powers, um, as a way of emphasizing both equally. That there is a physical emphasis, and how in that time period the physical often had spiritual undertones. But this leads to a deeper point, and the asking of why they would submit to regulations. But before this is another if clause, which says, as if you were still alive in the world. This concept of world is not meant to be one which separates us from the physical, but instead recognizes the elementals, which are the rulers of the world. If we were still alive in the world, then we would still be under their sovereignty, still under their lordship. However, we have died to such powers through Christ, who is above even them. Thus, why do they submit to the regulations? The submission to regulations is further expressed in verse 21. And we notice how the ESV accurately puts it, these phrases in quotes, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. In a way, Paul and Timothy are biting in their quotation. In a way, mocking that which is being told to the Colossians that they should refrain from certain foods or touching certain objects. Further, as the ESV reflects, these sayings are referencing things that will perish when they are used. That is likely a further statement against the idea of worrying about what we eat and what we drink. Likewise, it may reflect the rules themselves, which will perish in light of what Christ provides. Ultimately, the critique is further emphasized that these ideas are not, in the end, spiritual, but are based upon human precepts and teachings. This is reminiscent of Jesus' own critique against the religious groups he encountered. Um, When he argued, they focused so much on their traditions, but ignored the law itself. 
Jesus' own statement was a further reflection of uh, even Isaiah, and both Paul and Jesus were likely drawing from that source. What does it mean for them to be merely human inventions? The verse 23 explains, These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Though these ideas seem or appear wise, the truth is is that they fail in what they offer. We can think of festivals or fastings uh, for spiritual reasons to be wise, but the only wisdom that they have are for promoting self-made religion and asceticism um, and severity of the body. In all of these phrases, we see the reality of what they are offering in their teachings. But the reality is far different. And that is that they have no true value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Though they may say that following such rules and practices would cause our temptations of the flesh to cease. The simple truth is that they fail to do this. Thus, whatever wisdom is found in these acts, and whatever ways they may be forced upon people, ultimately they fall short of their desired impact. Alrighty, the main point, and the main point of these verses are to establish further warnings specifically against following rules and regulations which they might be encountering. Though these rules and regulations might sound appealing, and those who promote them boast loudly of what they are experiencing, the truth is that they will not mortify the flesh in the way that they claim. Thus, they are causing individuals to fall far from the head of the body, which is the true place of nourishment and growth. Alrighty, I only have one application point. It's a long one. (laughs) Alright, in the first few decades of the church age, we find something interesting occur. In particular, when we look at the book of Acts, we can see how the members of the church, Luke for example, talks about Christianity during those early times. Do you know what they would say discussing the faith? They would simply call it the way, hadas. As I considered these verses today, that phrase kept coming to my mind, the way, hadas. Maybe it was because we were dealing with things such as false teachers and teachings. Maybe it is because not only do we find false teachings, but we also find true teachings of the apostles here. Regardless, We learn early on in the Christian faith that they considered it a way, the way, and that in that respect it meant that there was a true and right way, a particular way. Today in these verses, we see the evidence of this. We see how Christianity is very different when it comes to other religions. We see how it is a way unlike any other way, and it reminds us that it is the way, the only way to our God. Now what do I mean by this? Well, in today's text, we experience what is fairly basic when it comes to religious practices. Uh, We see how Paul and Timothy deal with such things as food and drink, religious festivals and religious days, even worship. In all of these things, they are critiqued by Paul and Timothy as they conclude that these religious activities do not actually lead to what those who are claiming them lead to, which is spiritual growth. 
While in some basic sense these practices can be a good thing, when used inappropriately, they end up turning um, from being a good and helpful thing into something that is actually very harmful. As we reflect on many of these religious terms, do you know what we find? We find that we are not so different today as they were back then. Simply put, even today we continue to have this dichotomous view of ourselves in the world, in our minds, which allows certain practices to take root and be considered more holy than others. Let me give an example. When it comes to food and drink, generally we Protestants, we Baptists, we have been fine when it comes to food usually. We don't think much about it. Generally, you can put anything in front of us and we'll eat it. Our potluck dinners have been evidence of that. Yet, we have seen more and more those who would shame others for eating certain kinds of food in our society. You can't eat cows. That's immoral. You can't eat this or that. It's bad. The same has been true of drink. This one we have been a little bit more cautious about as Protestants, we'll be honest. Uh, there are many within our congregations, for example, who would refrain from alcohol, and they do so for religious reasons. They do not think it is proper for Christians to drink alcohol, and so they refrain. Now, if that was the end of the story, I think that we would be okay. The problem, however, can come from those who are haughty, or perhaps even arrogant, um, in their religious practice. That is, they can look down on those who do partake of alcohol as being less spiritual, not as religious, not as close to God as they are. And if this is the attitude we have toward our brothers and sisters of the faith, then we can be warned by what Paul and Timothy are warning about in this passage. It's that uh, mentality, that thought process, that which causes one to think of themselves as holier than others because of their religious practices, such as refraining from alcohol, that can cause someone something which is good to be turned into something bad. It is good for an individual to come to the conclusion that they should refrain from something if the Lord wills it for them to do so. But we cannot assume that such refrain should be placed on everyone, Neither should we assume that such refrain makes one holier than others. Does this mean that we should advocate drunkardness? Of course not. Instead, it reminds us to encourage one another to be temperate with anything in life, whether it's food or drink. I know alcohol in itself is not evil, but like everything in this world, it can become a tool for evil. Thus, as Christians, we especially must be careful if we do partake to show the world the proper use of the gift of food and drink in our lives. And I say this as someone who does not partake of alcoholic beverages. Uh, but me not partaking should not cause others to think, well, you know, he, I'm not as good as he is. I'm not as good as pastor is because I do partake. And it shouldn't cause me to say, I am so much better than they are because they drink a glass of wine. <laughs> it shouldn't happen. Yet, <laughs> thanks, Betsy. Yet we, do, yet we do not need to stay on food and drink in order to see how these verses apply to us today. Consider how Paul says Sabbaths. Um, this is interesting to me. Technically, we do celebrate Sabbaths, don't we? We still congregate together on Sunday mornings, our own Sabbath day, so to speak. Is it possible that Sunday morning can be something that is bad for us? Well, I would say yes. It can if we begin to look around us and start chalking up on our chalkboard. Well, Ellen wasn't here this Sunday. She is a wicked, wicked person. 
Yep. <laughs> Quote Gil, let me tell you. <laughs> but haven't we all been there? Haven't we all had moments when we think something similar to that? Uh, Maybe we saw someone and they were listening to the radio and it wasn't a Christian station. Maybe we saw them buy a movie or rent a movie. Maybe they talked about a movie or a show or something along those lines. Isn't it easy for us to pause and to think, they are so wicked. I would never watch that. I would never listen to that. You see, that kind of arrogance that can arise within us, do you see that? A kind of, I'm better than you are. Thought that can come up? It's not only with these things either. Even when we consider things like visions. Uh, Ironically, I don't know if it's ironic, but the reality, this has actually come up recently with someone that I know who said that they had a vision. And let me tell you, from that vision came a lot of arrogance. They told me how they aren't like others. They have deeper thoughts, different thoughts than those around them. And... What they were given was mightier understanding than others. Very haughty. What causes this kind of response to a vision? Or further, food, or drink, or even holy days? I think a lot of it has to do with one of the greatest lies which we have been told and continue to repeat to one another. And that is that there is a dichotomy between the physical and the spiritual. This idea that the spiritual is good and the physical is bad. So we purposefully let go of physical things in order to be more spiritual. And that seems reminiscent of what we see today, isn't it? The severity of the body. This asceticism which is discussed in today's passage. The question is though, is this the right way to understand the world? Does Christianity teach that the spiritual is all that matters and the physical is to be left behind and let go of? I would argue no. In fact, that may be one of the underlying issues that Paul sees in these verses. And what is that? Well, consider it. If we begin to place these spiritual emphases on certain areas of life, then what does that make the rest of life? Makes it lesser and lesser. It means that they are less important. So consider festivals and Sabbaths. What does it mean if we celebrate these things? It means that we have special days which are holier than others, and therefore they are better and more important than any other day. Thus the rest of our days during the week aren't as important as those days when they occur. Yet in truth, all of our days are to be holy days in Christ, because Christ is Lord of them all. It can be easy for us to forget that. Easy for us to think that God has Sunday and that's it. When in truth, he deserves every single one of our days. But then that leaves us with two questions that go in completely different directions, doesn't it? Um, You know, I grew up in a household where in all honesty, to partake of alcoholic beverages was simply a (laughs) no-no. You don't do it. So I understand those who might hear, well, alcohol is permissible. Because then the thought is, well, does that mean that everything is permissible? I think we have this trend to believe that if we allow some things, then we might allow all things. In some respects, unfortunately, there's truth to this. There are many, especially of our generation, my generation, I would say, who has found this Christian freedom and then run with it. They have run headlong into lifestyles which are questionable because they think that freedom means complete and total freedom. This, however, is not the case. 
We are free, it's true. We are freed from rules and regulations which demand of us to appease God or to be made right with God. But that doesn't mean our freedom is not bound to something, or in this case, someone, and that is Jesus Christ. Now, if the first question was, is everything permissible? Then the second question is, should we bother doing anything? What I mean is, if Sundays aren't meant to be special or a Sabbath, so to speak, then what does it matter? Why should we come to church on Sunday? Further, why should we, let's say, fast, if we do fast, or practice any form of asceticism or spiritual disciplines? Do they really have any purpose or point? One would think from today's text that they don't. Well, if we come to this conclusion, then I think we're missing the point. It isn't that ascetic practice is completely worthless. It simply means that these spiritual disciplines do not lead where we naturally think that they lead. And let me give an example from church history. Uh, There have been many examples in church history of those who have gone through such ascetic uh, disciplines in hopes to undermine the flesh. As it is, they still struggled against their passion despite having these physical things that they'd done. Those who are called the desert fathers, the monastics, the first few centuries of the church, um, who renounced the world completely, living as hermits in caves. One, St. Benedict, he would be tempted by the devil with sensuous thoughts of women. So you know what he did to fight against it? He would strip down his clothing and then roll around in brambles, thorns. This is simply an extreme example of an individual who had the right thought. This is a bad thought that I'm having. But then came to the wrong conclusion. Simply put, the issue we have isn't with food, drink, or even sex or central relations. The issue is our hearts. The issue, as Paul and Timothy said last week, that we are dead in our transgressions. As it is, we need to be made alive, and there is only one way to be made alive, and that is through Jesus Christ. That, I think, is the major point of all of this. If we believe that these things, these disciplines, are a way for us to get closer to God, do you know what we do? We diminish Jesus. He is the only way for us to get closer to God. If we think that by abstinence we can better ourselves, then we are cutting ourselves off from the head, who is Christ. Instead, we need to be drawn closer and closer to Christ in our lives. Only in this way will we experience true growth. And only in this way will we find our base desires of sin slowly diminish. So why do we come here every Sunday then? If we think it is because it makes us holier this act of coming here, then we miss the boat. Instead, we come here every Sunday because we seek Jesus Christ in a particular way. We seek to glorify him through coming together as a body, as a family, to worship him and to learn more about him. He is the reason for this, for our coming together, for our worship. It is Christ. Thus, the spiritual practice of coming together isn't meant to be primarily about making you look better, nor should we think we need it as a means for salvation. Instead, we do it out of love for Jesus. Every spiritual discipline, when viewed in this way, becomes good. When I was, um, when I as an individual, for example, fast, I do so for the Lord. When I practice spiritual disciplines, it is to draw closer to Christ. If it is for any other reason, then we risk separating ourselves from the head of the body. 
Thus, spiritual disciplines are good, but not when we think we need them for salvation or when we think it is through them we will find the battle against our sinful desires won. For our sinful desires are a struggle of the heart and the mind far more than the body alone. This is what makes the way so special and unique. It reminds us that we can and should live differently in the world, walking circumspectly in it. But at the same time, it tells us that Christ is the way. He is the head. He is the authority. He is the one who nourishes, who takes care of us. We are to be drawn closer to him in this life. That is the essence of true spirituality within Christianity. So in all of this, I encourage each of you to remember your freedom, but to remember that your freedom is bound to Christ. In this way, we can be temperate in our world. In this way, we can be set free from the world and its desires. We can be set free from the world which says that in order to attain salvation, you must work it out. You must do this, or you must do that, or refrain from this, or refrain from that. And that we can say in response, Christ can redeem this and that. Let me show you how he does it. I don't know about you, that seems rather fantastic to me. It takes the pressure off and allows me to enough freedom to live for God uniquely while at the same time not allowing me to live however I want. So if I should refrain from alcohol, others do not need to. And we can be at peace. They can show the world the right way to enjoy a blessing from God through drink. And I can show those who may struggle that they don't need to partake if it makes them struggle. Either way, God is glorified. Ultimately, the warning is simple. We can use these ascetic practices, but if we do, let us do so to grow closer to Jesus. If we fast, let it be so that we grow closer to Christ, not boasting in our fast, but in Christ. If we celebrate holidays or holidays, let them be for remembrance and to remind us that we could celebrate these things throughout the year, thanking God for them. The things Paul and Timothy critique can be good, but only in the right context. That context is Jesus. For while other religions boast in their practices for salvation, we boast in Christ alone. And that causes these practices to take on a very different meaning. Now, there's other things that this verse talked about that I think David is th- like thinking, why isn't he talking about this yet? So I decided to add a little bit to the gospel part. Um, you notice that today's text, it talked about worshiping of angels. Um, you guys notice it also talked a little bit about the syncretism. And what I mean by that is, is that it's not just Jewish religious observances, but you can also see these other religious observances that are not Jewish at all, which are being put in there. And I think that we in the church today are in danger of these very things just as they were back then. Um, And maybe not the worship of angels. I think that we're kind of wise about this. We don't go and worship angels. Why do we not worship angels? Why do we not need angels? Think about that for just one second. Why do we not need them? Bam. Because we have Christ. And you know what we learned throughout Colossians for two chapters? Christ is above them. And if we have Christ, why would we need angels? Why? We don't. Think about that. And Christ is with you. 
and he's above the angels. True, but you don't need to call on the angels. <laughs> I don't know. We'll talk about that after. Remember how I said that? <laughs> but no, the truth is, though, is that we don't actually need to call on angels, though, because angels are, are they're impotent compared to God. And I'll say, it's God who sends them, though. And the angel is only, is impotent without God. So therefore, you don't need to pray to angels, is what I'm saying. <laughs> true. That's true. But the point is, though, is that we don't need to worship them. We don't need to come here on Sunday mornings and pray and say, you know, angel, I need you to help me get to God. We don't need that. We need Jesus, which is the point. And then further, further, we also have this other reality, which is the syncretism. Which is this idea that if we can add a bunch of different elements together, maybe we'll be able to get to God easier. And we see that, I've seen that especially in the postmodern Christian movement, where this idea of, okay, well, let's add a little bit of Buddhism and a little bit of Christianity, and bam, because Buddhists, they practice much better than we do, so if we practice what they practice and say it's Christian, we're good. No. <laughs> we don't need this syncretism. We have Jesus. Think about that. We have Jesus. We don't need anything else. And that is the critique that we need to keep in our heads. Jesus is enough. He is enough. And so that leads to the gospel of Jesus. You know, it starts with our origins. What is the origin of the universe? It's God. God Almighty created the heavens and the earth. He created angelic beings. He created the physical. He created all things spiritual, and you know what? He created all things that were not spiritual. Think about that. He created everything just by speaking it into existence. You don't think he's powerful? He is. And not only that, he created humanity, and each of us were made in his image. Whoa. <laughs> each of us, we are created in the image of God himself, and that way we can love, we can reason, we can have all of these emotions and all of these thoughts. We can dream and we can have ideas, and we can make a difference on the world around us. And it also means that each of you, you're important. It means that each of you has dignity, has worth, sanctity to your life. Never think that you're nothing. You're made in the image of God Almighty. How wonderful. The problem, though, is the fall. And this is something that we do experience today in today's text. When Paul and Timothy are discussing all these practices, the fall is the reason why they become such practices. The fall is the reason why we can take something that is so good, like a spiritual discipline, and then turn it around and twist it so that that's the real focus, is the spiritual discipline and not Jesus. Because through the fall, humanity has fallen into sin. And because of that, we have broken relationships with God, ourselves, each other, and the world around us. And it's sorrowful and it's painful because we see the great effect of sin every day. And then there's the reality that if we can't get to God and we're broken with God, what can we do? Well, those who believe in religious practices as such, they'll say, 
You got to do this, 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 and this, and then maybe you'll get to heaven. God says, I'm going to send my son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross for you. And then through him, you're going to have redemption. Through him, you're going to be able to live rightly. Through him, you'll be able to know that you are at peace with me and that you will have me who is above everything else in the universe. Wow. (laughs) Christ brings the redemption. We are connected to the head who is Jesus Christ, who is before all, above all. As the hymn in chapter 1 said, he is before all, he is preeminent, and he is all-powerful. What else do you need? And so that leads us to the fact that through this redemption, through our faith in Christ over what he has done, we are saved. And then through that faith, the true evidence of faith is repentance, that we will live in a way which is pleasing to God. Repentance, turning away from our sin and turning toward God in our lives. Because, you know what, we're going to talk about this next week. You know, some people might think, okay, the chapter, Colossians is done. He's already dealt with faith in Christ and he's already dealt with bad teachings. Guess what? We still need to deal with things such as how do we live knowing that Christ is Lord? How? That's what the rest of the book is about. How awesome. Um, And so this redemption takes place, and it's an amazing redemption because it covers all things in our lives, not just some things. And ultimately, it leads to a future. For those who do not repent and those who do not place their faith in Jesus, guess what? There's no greater way for us to escape the punishment we deserve from sin, which is death. Is there anything? Okay, let me give you a question. You know what? The issue with sin, what is the major issue with sin? The guy at the end, the judge on, the th- on this throne. Sin without a judge means nothing. But if there is a judge, guess what? We have a problem because he has to judge sin. So if you go to angels or you go to something else, guess what? They're not as powerful as that judge. They can't do anything to save you. God, however, can. And that is what he has done through Jesus Christ. Thus, for those who don't repent and don't place their faith in Jesus, they have nothing to go by. And that's exactly what the scriptures teach. But for those who do repent and do place their faith in Jesus, they have the highest advocate, Jesus Christ. And therefore, when they approach the throne, all of the blood of Jesus covers every one of their sins. That includes yours. Every sin you've ever committed and every sin you will commit. If you believe in Jesus Christ, it's covered. You don't need anything else. That's what we're learning in Colossians. Jesus is enough. And it's with that that I encourage each and every one of you to consider the gospel of Jesus, which is what Paul proclaimed over and over and over again to many different churches and why we have to keep on hearing it over and over and over again because there's going to be times when it looks mighty nice to fall into something else. There's going to be times when we want to think, man, it would be so much easier if we just did something and then we don't focus on Christ. It's easy to get distracted. Don't get distracted from the way. Don't lose focus. Let us go to Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace, for your mercy, and for your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you 
that when it comes to salvation, we have the highest of advocates. When it comes to all things in this life, you have given us yourself. You have given us the greatest of blessings. And the greatest of blessings is you. It's your son. Lord, let us not get distracted. Let us remember to stay focused on the truth. And let us remember that Jesus Christ is the way and that we can continue to follow him every day of our lives through your grace, through this faith. We thank you. In the name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Please rise.